We're going to be doing something uh, unique. Uh, many of you probably received our e-letter this week. I hope you're getting that and seeing it, reading it. We're trying to inundate you with every way to give announcements so that we're not uh, taking up our time here with announcements. But, um, you know, in that e-letter, we talked about what's coming next. And ultimately, what's coming next in our consecutive expositions is the letter to the Romans. And um, that's a, a daunting thought and an exciting one uh, for our doctrine as a church uh, to be grounded. Basically, the reasoning behind that is to go from the Gospels to a Pauline letter, the first of the Pauline letters, and then following that, we'll go to the first of the general letters, which is Hebrews. And then we'll come back to a gospel, then the Pauline letters, then to the general letters, which are the three major divisions of our New Testament. And in between that, interspersing topical expositional studies and Old Testament expositions as well to keep rounding out our understanding of God's word and his whole counsel. Um, The plan for the next several weeks, the next extended period, really until we get to Romans, which will take a, a good amount of time, is to study our 10 ministry commitments, to unpack our philosophy of ministry in those 10 commitments. So we're going to spend three weeks on the Word of God as the, the central part of our church family, our life together, why that is, how that is, and what the fruits of that look like. So we're going to spend three specific studies in that, and I know that that will be fruitful for me as I prepare, and I trust it will be fruitful for us as we study it together here on the Lord's Day under the preaching of, of God's Word. This morning, we're going to do perhaps the unexpected, and uh, certainly the unexpected for me uh, this week, as I have considered how to best utilize opportunities when the culture around us collides with our worship as a church. Today might be a one-time experience. We might never again do what I'm about to do this morning, but I am going to preach to you and I want us to study together specifically in relationship to biblical womanhood on Mother's Day. Now Christians don't need Mother's Day. We are to live mother's lives. Exodus chapter 20 in the Old Covenant in the law began with honoring father and mother and that picks up in Ephesians chapter 6 and in our New Testament as the ongoing staple of our existence. Uh, In some ways mother and father's days make me cringe as much as Valentine's Day does. If you need a day so that you get one day where you in theory love the person that is closest to your heart namely with chocolate and flowers Um, And Mother's Day, if you need a day for your mom or for you as a mother to feel as if you are honored and and, and valued and and loved, then we are missing the boat as Christians. Uh, The love we have for our spouse is to be a lifetime, ongoing, fruitful part of our existence as a co-heir of grace, 1 Peter chapter 3. And certainly the honor and the value of our moms and our dads is to be a staple of our existence. Like it's supposed to distinguish us as God's people. So I trust that we won't get lost in what is a cultural opportunity. That's what it is. To the point where we live out the culture's expectation that this is the one day where we say thank you and we treasure and value the mother's of our lives. This is certainly an opportunity though, no less. So maybe you've grown up in churches like I have where a Mother's Day sermon was 
as expected as a Christmas sermon, as if Mother's Day was some kind of Christian holiday. It was like Resurrection Sunday, Christmas, Mother's Day. We never got a Father's Day sermon, and we never got roses handed out to the dads when we left at the door, but we always had a Mother's Day sermon, and those end up, over time, you either repeat or it gets further and further from actually what the context of those texts is intending us to understand. But, that being said, Mother's Day and Father's Day provide good opportunities for us as Christians to consider in a careful fashion and at this time in our Lord's Day service what it means to be a biblical woman or biblical man. It is not every text that supplies us with with information about womanhood and manhood. And the roles and the confusion of the roles in our culture make this a prime opportunity for us to take one Lord's Day and to focus our attention as a people of God gathered together on what it means to be a woman for God. Now, Mother's Day is not all fun for everyone. There are a myriad of ladies who have longed to be a mother and have never been given the opportunity to do so. There are a myriad of ladies and men who remember their mother on this day because she's not here to send a card to or to call or to take to a restaurant. There are many who wish that they could have back more days of mothering, but it's not possible because their children are gone. So let's be careful this morning as we study biblical womanhood that we keep it within the bounds of Scripture's intention. The Bible speaks to women. And even as we remember and celebrate and are eager to honor mothers because of our culture's expectation, let's be careful that we are mindful of the scenario that accompanies Mother's Day every year for many. Sensitive to how the Spirit might use us as a balm, as a soothing word to them in truth. Here is one true statement about biblical womanhood. And this will seem, I believe, overly elementary, and yet I think it is critical that ladies of the Lord imbibe this one statement. God is the consuming passion of godly womanhood. God is the consuming passion of godly womanhood. Ladies, this morning, God is the exclusive consuming passion if you are to be identified as a godly woman. That might seem like a no-brainer, but that is a difficult challenge just as it is for us to realize as men that God is the consuming passion of biblical and godly manhood. And there's an example in your Old Testament of a lady who learned through trial and difficulty the supremacy of God in her life. There is a lady in the Old Testament who stands as a vivid picture of the consuming passion of godly womanhood. And her name is Hannah. And we find her in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. So make your way in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you haven't been there in a while, Joshua judges Ruth, 1 Samuel. 
If you blaze past 2 Samuel, you end up in the Kings and the Chronicles. Hook a left and come back, and you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now we're diving into a book that we have not set up to understand. Context is important for us to grasp what's taking place. Samuel was the prophet who anointed King David. You remember this. So David has not been anointed. Saul has not been anointed at this point. There is no king. We've just come out of the judges. Israel's being led by a number of judges raised up to give guidance for God. They are clamoring for a king like the other nations. And Samuel is the recounting of God answering that request with Saul. Samuel is the faithful prophet that stands as a distinguishing person in the life of Israel and the history of Israel as God's provision for them. It's not written by Samuel. That's not why his name is on it. It's about Samuel. That's why his name is accompanying this. Likely written by someone long after Samuel's life. His death is recounted in 1 Samuel. So we have reason to believe that Samuel is not the author, though there is no author attributed within the writing of First and Second Samuel. This is a story of God's sovereignty, as your Old Testament consistently is. God's sovereign covenant faithfulness to Israel in spite of their rejection of Him. So you have this pattern that develops over and over again in the Old Testament of, of God's grace toward Israel, Israel's response in worship, Israel's drifting into sin, God's punishment for their sin. In punishment for their sin, repentance, God's favor and grace shown upon them. Worship, drifting, judgment, repentance, grace, worship, drifting, punishment. This is the accounting of Israel's history. It culminates in Malachi. It's constant, it's consistent, and it will always be until Israel is restored and receives their Messiah. In the coming day. But in 1 Samuel, we find an early account of Israel's history. And in this early account, we are, we are privileged to have this illustration of a God-centered woman named Hannah. Now, this, this story of Hannah and Samuel is familiar to us. Most of us who have grown up in any kind of familiarity with the Bible have something of a knowledge of this story and if if it needs sparked it will be in just a moment and you'll remember facts of this accounting. I want to divide it out for us into four major themes. Four major themes that that bring this picture to light, that shine light upon this illustration of biblical womanhood. Let me give them to you and then I'm going to give them to you again one at a time as we study them. Number one, we'll see Hannah's painful reality. Hannah's painful reality Number two, we'll see Hannah's prayerful repentance. Hannah's prayerful repentance. Number three, we'll see Hannah's profound response. Her profound response. And then number four, Hannah's precious reward. Reward. So number one, Hannah's painful reality. Number two, Hannah's prayerful repentance. Number three, Hannah's profound response. And number four, Hannah's precious reward. Now because of the amount of text that's here and the time it would take to read all of this, we will only read portions of the accounting of Samuel's birth and Hannah's life before God. Just enough for us to be reminded and to see clearly from God's word this illustration 
of a godly woman whose consuming passion is God. We'll begin with Hannah's painful reality in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. This sets the table for us. There was a certain man of Ramathium, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, or Jerohom, rather, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord, though Yahweh, had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord, Yahweh, had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I would say Elkanah was a well-intentioned but failing (laughs) husband in that speech, as many of you wives could attest to being the testimony of your life at different times with your sweet, well-intentioned husband speaking out of turn. What we find in these first eight verses is a very real, painful life. This is a lady who, according to verse number one, or verse number two rather, because she is named first, was most surely Elkanah's wife. He married this gal because he loved her, and he loved her deeply. But because she could not provide an heir for him, he married again, which according to the cultural laws of the day was a normal practice and Peninnah who he marries has children providing for him an heir but Hannah is his first love his first wife if you will and the 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 writing of Samuel the recording of this account doesn't speak to the morality of a second wife and that's certainly not our purpose because it's not the purpose or the intention of the text Clearly, this was in disobedience to God's standard and what God had ordained for marriage. And yet, what we find in the middle of this scenario is a deeply pained follower of God, a worshiper of God. And interestingly enough, the crucible of her pain was in the yearly movement to worship God at Shiloh. Because it was during this time that sacrifices would be given. And Elkanah, who likely was a very wealthy man, would give of his wealth to his sons and daughters and to his wives. And he would, he would bring them to Shiloh, to the tabernacle. that was called the, It'll be called the temple in a few moments, in a few verses. Where these two priests and their father Eli, who's the high priest, would meet them and would work out their sacrifices. It was during this time that the pain was at its worst. Because Peninnah, the second wife, would rub 
Hannah's barrenness in her face. The Lord, Yahweh, sovereign of heaven, had closed her womb. Now there's no curiosity here left about who exactly is behind the giving of children and the keeping of children. It is clearly attributed to God Himself. He's the one that knits in the secret places. Psalm 139. He is the one who provides life. And every conception is a gift of His miraculous creative power. And Hannah knew it. Elkanah knew it. And even if only in fact, Peninnah knew it. Verse number 7 tells us. Year by year, this relentless attack only further entrenched Hannah in her bitter desire for children. This lady had one consuming thought. I must have a child. I must be a mom. I will not be fulfilled. I will not have joy. I will not have peace. I will not know rest until I have a child. But brothers and sisters, and particularly sisters this morning, be mindful that God is the exclusive consuming passion of godly womanhood. Hannah's inability to bear children was an act of His sovereignty, but her despair and constant torment led her to a breaking point in her craving, her worship of having a child as an end in and of itself. Which is why it is so fascinating to find in these next verses Hannah's prayerful repentance. And I confess to you, like most of you, I have not, I have not throughout my Christian life read these verses as verses of repentance, but I think if we read them carefully, we're left with no other option. They've gone to Shiloh. She's tormented. She's not eating. She's weeping. Elkanah gives a stab at trying to, to, to comfort her with his own presence as better than ten sons. But her heart is so entrenched in a desire for a child that there is no appeasing her. Notice verse 9. The process of repentance begins. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Again, not the temple that Solomon built. This is well before Solomon was ever thought of. This is some kind of tabernacle building for worship with a high priest at Shiloh. Shiloh is due north of Jerusalem if you look at a biblical map in the back of your Bible. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, and wept bitterly. Verse number 10. Here's the breaking point. Here's the turning point of repentance that establishes this godly woman as a godly woman. Because it is here in this prayer that God becomes the consuming passion of this godly woman's existence. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, it is my common reading to think of this as a bargain with God. And I hope you won't sit in smug 
self-righteousness as if I'm the only one who's made a bargain with God in prayer. Lord, if you'll just help me pass this test, I will never spend another night playing video games before a test. Miraculously give me answers to this test. You have the power to do it. This is not, Lord, if you get me through this tragic accident, I will never again drink and become drunk. Which gets me in this accident. This is not whatever bargaining scenario we think of. And when we read a vow, and it includes, if you do this, God, I will do this, we naturally think this is a bargaining with God. God does not bargain. He does not relate to people who bargain with Him and barter with Him. He is the sovereign. And this is not a bartering session with God. Hannah is repenting. How do we know Hannah's repenting? Because of what she says. She says to God, I am your servant and what I have craved, what I have longed for, if in your sovereignty you choose to give it to me, I will give it to you because you alone are the consuming passion of my life. You are the end. Folks, don't misunderstand this. She is saying, if you give me the thing I have craved more than anything else, I won't have it. I'll willingly give it up. In other words, I'm done. I am finished fighting for what I cannot have. I'm finished fighting for an end in and of itself in a child. And if you will give me a child, the child will be just one more statement of my total allegiance to you. This is godly womanhood wrapped up completely in God. Every gift is for God as an expression of His power in Hannah's life. Now we know this in verse number 12. Unfaithful Eli, who didn't have the courage to confront his son's sexual impropriety and sin, makes his way over to make sure that she's not drunk. He thinks for sure she's drunk. She's mouthing the words without making sound. He confronts her. Hannah says, I'm not drunk. I've been pouring out my heart, my soul before the Lord. Verse 15. Verse 16, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I have been pouring out my soul. This is Hannah's utter surrender of Hannah's will. This is Hannah's repentance from her own way for what she has always said is the end for her. The ultimate for her. And it is a turning to the ultimate who is none other than God Himself. She will no longer look to a child as her ultimate fulfillment and happiness. If the Lord opens her womb, she will prove it by abandoning that child to the Lord forever. The treasure has changed. The priority has been upended. See, how do we know that this is what is taking place in the heart of Hannah? Notice the verses at the end of this paragraph. Eli answered her in verse 17, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way, and look at verse 18, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
Now, what possibly could have affected Hannah to the point where earlier in the day she could not eat and she would not stop weeping to the point where she is now eating and she is now joyful? Surely it must be that she had a baby. No. It's because she has poured out her soul in repentance to the Lord. And her gaze is fixed upon Yahweh, the covenant sovereign of Israel. And now her countenance is affected. Now her her eating returns. She can cope with life. Because the consuming passion has been established in its rightful place. She trusts God to do what is right. Therefore, in spite of the continuing pain, this doesn't end the pain. This certainly doesn't end Penina's pain. I mean, I don't know about you, but when we read this, we just want to slap Penina. I mean, we just want to give her a good slap. What are, what are you doing? Leave her alone. You bully. God gave you those children. Why do you use it as a weapon to provoke this other lady? Now Hannah comes home. Penina, no doubt, continues to rub it in her face, but she can eat, and her countenance has been affected. In verse 19, they as a family, albeit a dysfunctional one, rose early in the morning and worshipped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. They worshipped. That's Hannah worshipping Yahweh before returning home. This is Hannah's repentance. Hannah's heart is right with God. He is set at the center of her existence. Her womanhood is established as godly womanhood because no longer has the consuming passion been left outside of God Himself. What has always been the determining factor of her joy in life has now been reestablished in God Himself. And with joy... She returns to normal life with God at the center of her existence. So God is always the consuming passion of godly womanhood. Now, this obviously doesn't end the story. Thirdly, we see Hannah's profound response. And her response is in direct connection to God's interaction on her behalf. The end of verse 19 says this, And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. That is um, a biblical cloak, if you are unfamiliar with reading your Bible, for intimacy with his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, which many of you ladies are experiencing right now, the due time, in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, or name of God, where she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. Now, it's here that the response begins. Because surely at the bargaining table, whatever bargain had been made, if in fact God in his graciousness, apart from responding to the bargain, did what we've asked, and we survived the accident, or we pulled a C on the test and got to stay on the team, we surely have been unfaithful to our end of the deal that we falsely out of selfish hearts have prayed to God. But when there's genuine repentance, the fruit of that repentance is seen in the pattern of life. And what began with her joy and countenance and ability to eat now is followed up with her 
continual faithfulness to the vow she's made to the Lord. And in her response, she gives her baby to the Lord. This is an unbelievable thought. This is not five minutes down the road. This is not a family member that will come over all the time and bring the baby. This is giving the baby to Eli. When the baby's weaned, they take the baby with a sacrifice. Verse number 24. She took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Now notice the next verses, verse 25. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, that is to Eli, small l, Lord. O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord, to Yahweh. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And Eli worshipped Yahweh there. And he worshipped Yahweh there. Now, Hannah's response does not stop with this turning over of Samuel. The answer to her prayer, the fruit of her repentance, she hands over to Eli, but she gives in prayer this, this poem prayer, this what's commonly known as Hannah's song, in verses 1-10 through 10 in chapter 2. And these are amazing words because it is obvious that this godly woman is consumed with God. Her mind is filled with thoughts of God and His goodness and His power. Her heart is overflowing with worship toward God. Her joy is found in God. This is the mark of biblical godly womanhood. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My strength is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And she goes on and on and on in praise to her powerful God. Verse number 9, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Her, her, her whole perspective has changed. What used to be, if I could just somehow have kids, I would be fulfilled. My life would be complete. She recognizes now, it is not by might that a man prevails. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. Looking forward to David, looking forward to Christ. Hannah's response is nothing short of a heart change. This is the same woman who couldn't eat, who couldn't be with people without being vexed with sorrow. Her consuming passion has found its resting place in the rock that is our God. And all of His blessings are opportunities for worship of His glorious name and character. Her existence is consumed with God. This is her profound response. She did what she promised to the Lord. Even after the blessing of a son, her heart was the Lord's alone. 
Therefore, her promise stood and she gave that only son to the Lord. The sovereignty of God was the theme and song of her heart. Ladies, is it the theme and song of your heart that you know a sovereign, good God? Or is His goodness or His power in question? Because the center, the the consuming passion of your life is some fruit of it that you have placed upon Him. In other words, is God powerful and is He sovereign and good because He does what is sovereign and good and powerful? as you've defined it, or is He in fact sovereign, powerful, and good in and of Himself? Therefore, you trust exactly what He has planned and ordained for your life. God must be always the consuming passion if you are to be godly women for the praise of His name. Now, we can't leave the story without the precious reward. So, fourthly, we see Hannah's precious reward. Verse number 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. He's a boy who is a priest. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer a yearly sacrifice. Now pause right there before we look at this reward that God has given to her. Did you notice here the record of why Hannah went up to Shiloh? Now, we would naturally think that Hannah went up to Shiloh to see Samuel. That's why she went, right? This was the the fruit of her prayer. This This was the end of her existence that she was finally allowed to bear children. No, she went to Shiloh to sacrifice to God in worship. And the sub thought is she brought along garments for Samuel as he grew, seeing him perhaps at the most three times a year as he ministered before the Lord. Verse number 19, or verse number 20 rather, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters and the young man Samuel grew Not in her presence, not as her consuming passion, but in the presence of Yahweh. Now, here is the precious reward from God. Eli's sons are wicked. Samuel is the determining factor of righteousness in the nation. But Hannah experiences far greater blessing than she could have ever imagined in her crying out to Yahweh in prayer. There's an ongoing pattern here of God's gracious interaction with those who are humbled before Him. Three sons, two daughters, five kids were added to whatever the Elkanah family was called in the last name. Hannah experiences five more children and yet Hannah's worship is unmoved Because the centering of her life is on the foundation of God Himself. So, ladies, this morning, it is appropriate for you to consider what is the defining centerpiece of my existence? What is it that I rotate around? What is it that that I orbit around, that my life is consumed with, that stands as the pillar of who I am? 
because it is a subtle temptation from the enemy to allow you to put at the center good things that are to be means of worship to the only superior person, God Himself. Even children can stand between you and the consuming passion that is to mark your life with God Himself. God is the consuming passion of godly womanhood and Hannah is a beautiful illustration of godly womanhood. Now, it's appropriate, I think, to end with just a few implications for life from this kind of an illustration. Okay? Implications. That means applications. That means thoughts that come out of this. This is secondary to interpreting the text. We now apply the text. And here are a few implications to consider this morning. Godly women worship God alone, not children. Idolatry of children can come for those without husbands. Those who are married but don't have children, like Hannah. Or those who have both and who idolize their children. God alone must be the consuming passion of every woman who will be God's woman. This is why Proverbs 31 is so clear in verse number 30. That the charm and the beauty, the externals, are, they're vain. They're, they're fleeting. The woman who is to be praised fears the Lord. She is known by her awe of God and the effects it has upon her existence. It is so easy in our culture and even within our Christian culture to say things like, I live for my kids. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have them. My existence is is so wrapped up in my kids. And surely, the calling of, the, the, of, of womanhood and motherhood in particular is to be connected very intimately with children. But the consuming passion, the identifying feature, the relationship of your life must be, must be God Himself. Ladies who long to be married and to have families run to God. Treasure the rock that is unlike any other. Preach to yourself truth about where joy and hope and contentment and peace come from. There is no money. There is no experience of life. There is no switching of your scenario that will accomplish those things. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings you into a relationship with the eternal creator God of heaven establishes those internal qualities. Find your hope even as you long for something from God. Find your hope in God Himself. Implication number two, godly men lead godly women to worship God alone. Godly men lead godly women to worship God alone. Men, lead the women of your life to God. To the exalted place of His Son. To finding their contentment and joy not in the day-to-day experience of their life. Not in the trials or the blessings of life, but in the One who ordains both trials and blessings. Point the women to God. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 35. 
It's kind of an odd place to go because it's there that we have what is culturally very uncomfortable. Paul tells the women to be quiet in church. In particular, he's talking about when prophetic utterances are given. Before the canon's closed, communication from God is coming through mouths. Thus says the Lord, prophecies. And there was challenges or questions to those prophecies. The women were told to be quiet. Do not involve yourself in that. But ask your husband at home. Your own husband at home. Now there's an inference underneath of that, guys, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little touchy. Wait, my wife is supposed to depend upon me to be the, the discerning one of truth, to be able to guide her in the truth, to be able to take God's Word and handle it with her. She should look to me, and I should be someone who leads her toward trust and confidence in God. Yes, that's our calling. And this is clearly an implication of biblical womanhood. Godly men lead godly women to worship God alone. Ephesians 5 surely is another place to go to talk about God, God's work in men loving their wives. Number three, godly older women teach godly younger women to worship God alone. Like this is clear and defined. Titus chapter 2 and verse 5 says older women in the church are to instruct younger women about their lives, keeping their homes, loving their husbands, caring for their children. And then there's a little phrase at the end of chapter 2 and verse 5. So that the Word of God is not reviled. In other words, older ladies are to take younger ladies and they are to interact with them in such a way as to say, listen, God is at the center of our existence. That means certain activities are a normal part of our lives. And if they're not a normal part of our lives, we call into question the validity of God's Word. So older ladies are to take up the task of teaching younger ladies to be consumed with God, His standard, and His grace to accomplish the standard. This is why we have T2 ministries, to facilitate this. To have around a table, ladies of all different ages, all different walks of life, all different experiences, and to have those who are older in Christ and older in life experience to, to communicate with the younger. So that God becomes the center of another generation of ladies who bring glory to the Lord. Finally, fourth implication. One, godly women worship God alone. That's clear. Can't go away from Hannah's life without seeing that. Number two, godly men lead godly women to worship God alone. Number three, godly older women teach godly younger women to worship God alone. And number four, Jesus is the mediator for men and women to know, love, worship, and walk with God. Jesus is the mediator for men and women to know, love, worship, and walk with God. Say, how am I ever going to find a relationship with God that fills up my heart and life? Only through Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says that He is the mediator between God and men. We're separated. Ladies, you are separated from your Creator. Your sin has marked you out as an enemy of His sovereignty. 
You are in rebellion against Him from birth onward. You live in that rebellion. And the only remedy to that rebellion against God and His authority is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can stand in the middle, can pull you in, and can pull the the glory of God and make the two in fellowship again. He's the mediator. He's the middleman for us. To come to talk about valuing and being consumed in our passion for God and to not talk about Jesus as the means of that passion is to miss the Gospel. The good news is you can be consumed with God because of Jesus. He's obeyed God perfectly in your place. He's died and He bore the wrath of God toward your sin on Himself. And He's been raised on the third day to victory over death and sin so that you can live in obedience and victory to God. So to talk about godly women is to talk about a miracle. Really. That's not to be offensive. But none of you women, apart from a miracle, would be godly women. And there's only one who could accomplish that miracle in you. And we praise God that He has accomplished that miracle in so many of you. His name is Jesus. He has made you godly women. Now align yourselves to have as your consuming passion the God who has redeemed you and His Son whom He has exalted. God is the consuming passion of godly womanhood exclusively. So on a day like today when our culture celebrates motherhood and and really women in general, it's appropriate for us to take the opportunity to pause long enough to think through what does God say about biblical womanhood? He doesn't attach fulfillment merely to children or to marriage. He attaches fulfillment, joy, peace, hope, and life to relationship to Himself. And He does that through His Son. So no matter your circumstance on this Mother's Day, no matter the the life in which this finds you, let Hannah's illustration, let her desperate scenario, her true repentance, the fruit of it and the reward of it, be an encouragement to you ladies to be passionately pursuing God as an end, the end of your existence. Why were you created, ladies? To know, worship, and enjoy God forever. Be about that today and tomorrow and this week. And men, be committed to setting an example and encouraging the ladies of your life to be godly women whose consuming passion is none other than God Himself. I trust that's an encouraging word for us this morning. Father, thank You for this truth. Thank You for... Hannah's forever sealed illustration. So many of our families can immediately relate to the pain of her barrenness or her loss in not having children. So many even today are feeling that pain. May they find their confidence. May they find their contentment. May they find their joy May they find their hope where Hannah found hope, joy, peace, and contentment. In You, the One who loves us through Your Son. The One who fills us, completes us, and blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens.
through Christ. So the pain is real. And yet the soothing balm on the pain is your presence. Father, may the women of Grace Church be known as godly women because they are so clearly identified as being consumed in their passion for you. May they not be conformed to this world, but may they be renewed in their minds so that they are transformed into the likeness of your Son who was consumed with you. I praise you for the godly women that are sitting in this room and that are sitting in churches all around this world today. May the women of our lives whom you have made godly women be opportunities for us to celebrate your grace, your power, because they have been made such by your miraculous work in them through your Son. So may we take every opportunity to outdo one another in showing honor to these godly women. May we encourage them to continue faithful in the fight, to run the race to its completion, to make much of you today and every day. For the glory of your name we pray. In the name of the one who has worked this miracle, our risen Savior, we pray.